I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 56 and verses 1 through 8. And you remember that we had started a sermon series, a three-part sermon series, the first part of the sermon, and it was Christian Disciplines for the New way, uh, Year, Ways to Grow in Grace and the Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the first things that I set before you was that first sphere of worship, and that is personal worship, the worship that we do in private when we enter into the presence of the Lord, our closet worship, as it's sometimes called, and that is where a man is most honestly exposed before Christ. If we have no closet worship, we have no true faith in him. That's when we talk to him personally, when we come before him on our knees or standing or even falling upon our faces and we talk to Jesus. We talk to him about our needs. We go to the Father in the name of Christ and we ask for his blessings and for his help. And we speak to him as a child speaks to their father. That would be private worship. And the second sphere we talked about, family worship, when we open up the Bibles in our homes and we once again speak uh, the faith together. We have our common confession and we hail the Lord as the Lord of our households and say as we do our family worship, in essence, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That too is tremendously important. But then there's the third circle of worship and that is the one that most resembles heaven. And of course, that's what we're doing here today, corporate worship as we gather together in the name of the Lord. And we praise him when we hear the word preached and we observe the sacraments. This is the only place where the sacraments can be rightly administered and we are going to be partaking of them. The Lord's day, though, that one day in seven the Lord gave us to worship upon him. The fourth uh, commandment, obviously, uh, that tells us to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. That is of great importance to our spiritual growth. It is something vital to knowing the Lord. We're going to discuss that today and put it in its right place and discuss how the Lord's Day fits in with God's entire program of redemption and how it can build us up. But before we go to Isaiah 56, let us turn our attention to God and ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I do pray now that you would help me to open up and unfold your word to talk about the importance, O Lord, of what you did in history, breaking into it and bringing light to people who were once afar off and giving us a day when we could worship the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth with all of our brothers and sisters that is a practice day, a day when we practice for heaven and for the eternal Sabbath that will never end. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have given us the blessing of this day. Help us not to, not to shun it, not to think it an inconvenience, but rather to see all the ways in which we are blessed by this day of peace, this day of wonder. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I open up your word and try to explain the importance of this day to your people. I can do nothing without you, Lord. You are the vine. I am but a branch. But help me to be a fruitful branch today. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Thus, For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. December 25th, 1776 was 246 years ago today. It was a momentous day in American history. And in a real sense, it was the day on which the American Revolution was saved. Uh, Even though it was the year in which the Declaration of Independence was signed, 1776 was not a good year for the colonials in their uprising against George III. Washington's Continental Army had suffered nothing but defeats that particular year, 1776, including the catastrophic capture of New York City by the British, and then a long retreat during which Washington's forces dwindled to perhaps 6,000 men capable of bearing arms. Now, a lesser man than Washington, faced with these odds, might have given up hope and attempted nothing except perhaps to hunker down from the winter, uh, for the winter rather, and pray that things changed in the new year. But he decided that he was not going to do that. He would have one last cast of the die, throwing himself upon God's providence, the God whom he depended upon. And so he he decided to attack the British. That was an amazing thing, especially given how fierce the winter weather was. In in an amazing act, therefore, that's immortalized in that, uh, that painting, which is probably absolutely inaccurate, Washington crossed the Delaware on December 25th, 1776, and he attacked the Hessian forces who were occupying Trenton at that point. Now, there was a lot of differences between the two sides that met in battle the following day, December the 26th, 1776. The Hessian mercenaries who served the British crown, they were better equipped, they were comfortably housed, and they were veterans. These were mercenaries who had fought in many campaigns on the continent. The men of the Continental Army, however, were volunteers. In many cases, either their term of enlistment had expired or was about to expire, uh, and they were very, very poorly equipped indeed. In some cases, they didn't have shoes. One uh, veteran of this particular campaign recalled seeing a line of bloody footprints left by the men who had had only rags to tie about their feet as they marched towards Trenton. But perhaps the biggest difference between the two sides was not their experience in battle or their equipment or any of those things. Perhaps the biggest difference between the two sides was religious The Hessians, as the name implies, were from Hesse in which country? Germany. Germany, very good. They were mostly Lutheran, and as a result, they observed the holy days of the Western Church calendar, including Christmas. This meant that on the 25th, when Washington and his army were crossing the Delaware River, they were celebrating in the European fashion, which one 
Contemporary describes it as eating, dancing, singing, sporting, card playing, drinking, and gambling. Their commander, Johann Rahl, uh, for instance, spent the day, the 25th, playing cards at a Christmas party and was observed to be by one, one observer in his cups by the evening. Loyalists sent Johann Rahl a warning about the imminent colonial attack, but apparently he simply thrust it into his pocket without reading it and continued on playing. After all, what barbarians would attack on Christmas Day? Well, the answer was the overwhelmingly Presbyterian and congregational men of Washington's army. Uh, they were so there were so many Presbyterians, incidentally, in Washington's army that uh, one loyalist wrote, of friends, uh, wrote to friends in England, I fix all the blame of these extraordinary proceedings upon the Presbyterians. And the revolution was often referred to, literally, by the British politicians and even the king as a Presbyterian rebellion, and with good reason. All of the colonels of the colonial army, but one, were Presbyterian elders. It is estimated that more than half of all the soldiers and officers of the American army during the entire revolution were Presbyterians. For them, December 25th was called Wednesday. And Wednesday was as good a day as any in their mind for fighting tyranny. So they attacked early on the 26th and quickly overwhelmed the sleepy Hessian garrison Suffering, and this is a mark of God's providential oversight of the revolution. They suffered only two deaths in the entire attack and took over 900 prisoners, completely overwhelming them. You see, here's the issue. For the Presbyterian and Congregationalist descendants of the Reformation who were living in America, who made up the bulk of Washington's army, the acceptable way of worshiping God was not decided by men or even by the church gathering together. As the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21.1 put it, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith 21.1. And therefore, those men agreed with the Westminster Directory for Public Worship when it stated, festival days, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. Now, they knew that Christmas and Easter, in terms of their observance in the Western church, went back to 200 or 300 AD, 200s for Easter, 300s for the Feast of the Nativity, which came to be known as Christmas. But they knew also that it hadn't been observed by the apostolic church, that Paul had not observed Christmas as a particular day, and that while the resurrection was the, the beating heart of all of Paul's work, there was no day of Easter that was observed by the Apostolic Church in particular. For them, every Sunday was a celebration of the completed work of Jesus Christ, and in particular, his rising again. Now, this did not mean, far from it, that they had any, they had no day, rather, that they kept holy they actually had 52 holy days in their calendar. These days were called Sundays, the days on which the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. This was the day that the Apostle John called the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, says John, who although he was 
suffering in a penal colony in the middle of the Mediterranean called Patmos, yet he saw beyond the bounds of that little island. He saw all the way to what the Lord was revealing to him, and he knew that he would be with the Lord forever and that the Lord would in due time come for his people, and he made that known to us. This was also the first day of the week upon which Jesus had appeared to the disciples in John 20. It was the day upon which the apostolic church gathered in Troas in Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. And while they did not have a holy day specifically set aside to observe uh, the incarnation, the church, the apostolic church, understood the essential connection between the Lord's Day and the Incarnation, a connection that Isaiah opens up in the chapter that we read, chapter 56. Now, chapter 56 occurs in the section of Isaiah in which the Lord is talking to his people. He is comforting them with the good news of what is to come. He is talking about the coming of his servant, Perhaps the greatest exposition of the gospel message in the entire Bible you will find in this particular chunk of Isaiah. You'll find it in Isaiah 53, the message of the suffering servant, the one whom we know as Jesus, the one whom Isaiah presented to the people of Israel as Emmanuel, God with us. And in Isaiah 53, of course, we see the gospel message, how he would suffer for his people's sake. He would be buried and rise again, and he would do all of this for their justification. God with us, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer and his coming, is the section that we're in in Isaiah when we're in Isaiah 56. And just as we acknowledge how Christ changed the world forever, and men, even though they, today they try to get, uh, get away from it, don't they? We remember that time is split into two quadrants. When we look at history... We see B.C. and A.D., or at least we used to, before Christ and Anno Domini, year of our Lord. Today, of course, they do C.E., Common Era, and B.C.E., before Common Era. And then you say, ah, yes, but what happened that split the two? What was it that that made the difference between B.C.E. and C.E.? Because the truth is, it's Christian Era and before Christian Era. That's what they should be calling it. It's Christ. And his coming that made all the difference. And that was what Isaiah was telling Israel. Isaiah is opening up the word of the Lord. He's telling Israel that the day is coming when everything will change. Now, at the time he was speaking to them, they were an increasingly disobedient people. They were following pagan gods. They were entering into pagan worship. They were even sacrificing their children to to false gods like Molech and Most egregiously, week after week after week, they were ignoring the Sabbaths. They were doing their own pleasure. They were worshiping their false gods. They were working. They were ignoring this day of blessing the Lord had given them. That one day in seven set apart for rest, set apart for worship, set apart for just being still and knowing that he was God. They ignored that. But the day is coming. When after they were taken into exile, when after they were chastened by the Lord, the Lord tells them salvation will come. 
And God's righteousness will be revealed not just to Israel, but he makes this stupendous promise, and it's throughout Isaiah, that the Lord's righteousness would be revealed to all the earth, that his salvation would be seen in the sight of all men. A stupendous promise when you think that Isaiah is dealing with a tiny nation in the ancient Near East at the point that he's speaking. But what God tells them is everyone to the furthest shores, the Gentiles will know the name of the Redeemer. The Redeemer of Israel will in fact be the Redeemer of the world. The Lord's righteousness will be revealed to all the earth. And this, this salvation be so extensive, it would be so radical that people who had never before been able to come into the presence of the Lord and worship will be able to. The foreigner, the Gentile, who could not enter into the presence of the Lord, the uncircumcised, they would be able to come and worship God. They would become part of the covenant people. The middle wall of separation. In Herod's temple, there was actually a low wall which said to the Gentiles, this is as far as you go. It was in three languages. To step beyond this point is death. You may not enter into the presence of the Lord because you are one who is afar off. You are not part of the covenant people. Isaiah was telling the world and the people of Israel the day is coming when those who could not step beyond the wall will joyfully bound into the presence of the Lord and will stand amongst God's people on the Lord's day and will worship. The eunuch, we remember, who even if he was born an Israelite, if he was a eunuch, if he had, had, had um, he'd been castrated or whatever, he was forbidden in Deuteronomy 23.1 to enter into the temple to worship. But now God says to them, you who are the eunuchs, you will come near. You will worship. You will become part of the covenant community. You will observe the Sabbath day with joy and you will be fruitful. I will give you more fruit than the one who doesn't know me, who has many children. You will have spiritual descendants, and you will be remembered forever as one of my people. Now, all of the prophecies that were being made in Isaiah 56, they didn't come to pass in Isaiah's day. And they didn't come to pass for roughly 700 years after Isaiah's day. They were fulfilled when Jesus, the Messiah, came. When he was born and when he suffered, died, was raised again, and then when he sent his apostles particularly into the world to gather those who were once afar off, the gospel goes to the entire world. And Isaiah is saying that day is coming. And on that day, you will worship the Lord together as my people. In Ephesians 2.11 Paul speaks of the fulfillment of that promise. He says this, Therefore remember that you, and when I read this, I mean this seriously, when I read this, understand you are being addressed. The vast majority of the people in this room are not descendants after the flesh of Abraham. We were Gentile descendants ourselves. And yet this is the good news that's being given to us. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought in here by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Because of what God did in sending his son into the world to redeem us, we have been brought near. We have been made part of the covenant people. The promises of Isaiah 56 have been accomplished. Isaiah spoke before they uh, came to pass, but today I'm preaching to you after they have come to pass. And while the day on which the Sabbath was celebrated, while it has changed, going from the first, uh, sorry, the last day of the week to the first day of the week, the Sabbath celebration will continue. In that section, remember, and we're speaking at a time after the eunuch has been brought in, after the foreigner has been brought on in, and if you move ahead in Isaiah just slightly, to Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, this is a promise that's being made to God's people, including you in every age. <laughs> Isaiah 58, 13, if you turn your foot from the Sabbath, turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those promises didn't just resonate in the heart of the people of Israel when Christ came. When Zechariah, as he declared the wonder of his son, John the Baptist's birth, when he was declaring those, those great promises were being fulfilled as we sang the song of Zechariah. They didn't just resonate in the hearts of the apostles who were rejoicing that the Redeemer of Israel had come and they knew him. His name was Jesus. They resonated in the hearts of Christians, those Christians who uh, knew the Lord, those sincere Presbyterians and Congregationalists who were crossing the River Delaware with Washington. And they continued on, resonating in the hearts of God's people for many years. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833 reads, Of the Christian Sabbath, we believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, or Christian Sabbath, and is to be kept sacred by religious purposes, by abstaining from all secular labor and sinful recreations, by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for the rest that remaineth for the people of God. And for many years, many, many years in American history, that was something that wasn't just seen in the way that God's people gathered on the Lord's Day to worship him in numbers far greater than they do today. But it was seen in the way that all commerce stopped. Many of you are old enough to remember the day when you couldn't even buy a hot dog on Sunday. Now, I was not a Christian. I used to hate the Lord's Day. Do you know why I hated the Lord's Day? Because I had the day off from school, but I couldn't go to the station stop and buy a comic or some of the awful baseball cards and that, that stick of fossilized gum that they used to put in with them. Those were the things that my heart lusted for. So I used to drive around the neighborhood aimlessly on my bike. Nothing was open, nothing to do. This is so terribly boring. A day of delight had been intended for me and I knew nothing of it because I still lived in the dark. I was afar off. I didn't know the wonder, the joy of the Lord's day. Many Americans did though. And they, for many, many years, kept that day holy. But today things have changed radically, and not just in the culture. 
I, I would put it to you that most modern evangelicals only have, at the most these days, nine commandments, that the fourth commandment has entirely evaporated, the commandment to remember the Lord's Day. Vody Balkum, who I would recommend to you, is one of my two favorite uh, preachers at the moment, in his section in Family Shepherds, which I would so recommend to you fathers. It is a wonderful book outlining what it means to be the pastor of your own household. That's the, way, the word that, uh, that um, uh, we translate shepherd, the pastor. Uh, in, in, event, in his section in Family Shepherds entitled, Can You Give God a Day? When he uh, encourages Sabbath observance, he notes this. For most Christians in our culture, the idea of a Christian Sabbath is completely foreign. Chances are, unless you've been running in certain conservative Presbyterian or Reformed Baptist circles, you've never heard such a position espoused. And to tell the truth, I was one of those people. I, I, I had heard nothing about the Sabbath until I got to seminary. And I began to see it actually being lived out, not just in church, but in the households of members of the congregation, and in particular the pastor's household, seeing how their week changed dramatically on that first day of the week, how everything changed and went into a, a holy cycle at that point in time, when they stopped their worldly activities and they thought about what was to come, the Sabbath that remains for the people of God, the grand Sabbath that this is just a little bit bitty echo of. Now, with the loss of the Sabbath, we have lost many things in American culture. Uh, church attendance, for instance, has continued to decline since we eliminated the Sabbath. And that's because we have so many things now competing with the Sabbath. Many of you know this. Sunday is now the second most popular day for shopping. Sunday is filled with kids' sports. In my time as a pastor, some of the most... Um, saddening conversations I've had with families are as they've come to me and said, Pastor, we're not going to be in church on Sunday. Our son or our daughter has a travel day. We are going to be away from church, but don't worry. We're only going to miss five or six Sundays this year because of games. And I've honestly, and many times, asked them, well, what lesson are you teaching your children? You're teaching them that the game is more important than the Lord's Day. That that which is for only a few moments supersedes and is more important than that which goes on forever. But there's a myriad of different things. Recreation is one of the things that gets in the way of the Lord's Day today. William Plumer rightly said, no Sabbath, no church is the rule laid down in Scripture. It is a correct rule. Without the holy day, all true religion would soon vanish from the earth. And brothers and sisters, every time you see a store or a business saying, now open Sunday, you see an institution, and you need to know this, an institution whose workers cannot go to worship on Sunday morning. It's simply impossible. Joy and I still remember the day when in uh, the midst of the Sunday school, as people were talking, um, uh, there was one family had enthused about how it was wonderful that they could leave church and immediately go to brunch. And uh, the fellow said, and so I give my wife a day of rest from cooking. And the manager who was, had his, um, of the restaurant, who had his uh, bulletin in his hands and was twisting it, stood up in a rage. And he said, well, that's, you know, that's nice for you. But please understand, we don't start cooking at brunch time. We don't start cooking when you leave the church. We've been there from 7 a.m. onwards, and the owner of my restaurant expects me to be there. This is one of the few Sundays that I've gotten a chance to worship with my family because everything's open, because we're, we're preparing for the 
brunch time crowd to come flooding into our restaurant. Christians were making his Sabbath impossible, is what he was saying. Chick-fil-A is one of the few institutions these days that you will find that is still closed on Sunday. And I sometimes wonder, now that Kathy Truett is dead, will that continue on? Will uh, Will his family remain faithful to that particular part of his message? So remember, every time you go to lunch, every time you go shopping on on a Sunday, you are helping to do in, unfortunately, the Sabbath. Now, most considerations of, of what we should do on the Sabbath usually devolve, unfortunately, into lists of don't do this. But rather, I, I want to encourage you to simply consider how you can use this day best, how it can become what it's supposed to be in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, a day of delight for you. Vodi Balkum again asks this question. He says, I do want you to consider the way you spend the Lord's day and whether it honors God. Does your life reflect the pattern God built into creation? Do you give sufficient attention to the day Jesus set apart by his resurrection from the dead? And are you encouraging your brethren on a regular basis to be there? Are you encouraging them by being there? Do you understand how encouraging it is to members of the church to see their brethren alive and worshiping and singing God's praises and fellowshipping with them and how discouraging it is when they're all missing, when they're absent on that particular day. Hebrews 10.24 gives us this exhortation. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the same as you see the day approaching. It's not a mistake that the word church comes to us from the Greek word ekklesia, and that word means assembly, the same, it's a, it's a literal translation of the Hebrew word for God's people, the assembly, the kahal in the Old Testament. When are we most God's people? When we're doing this, when we are assembled together to worship. That's what God called us out of the world to do, to worship him together, and not just for time, but for eternity. So let me make three applications. And I warn you, and I'm so sorry, um, they're all difficult applications. But I know that you are people who can take it. I know you are people who don't want to be coddled, don't want to be patted on the head, who want to hear the truth. So let me start with my first application. I know that there are going to be some either online or perhaps even here who are saying at this point, okay, so Sunday is good. I'm not going to argue against that, Pastor. Sunday is good. It's good for our growth in grace. But Pastor, why not also celebrate those big holy days? I'm not saying we have to do all of the little ones, you know, no Feast of the Epiphany. We don't have to have St. Swithin's Day or St. Crispin's Day or, or any of those days. Why, why can't we just do Christmas and Easter, for instance? Uh, they can't do any harm. Now, is that true, though? They can't do any harm. Let me ask, by what authority do we do these things? And that's a critically important thing for the church to consider at any point in time. By what authority do we do these things? Let me, if I can, spin out a scenario where I'm trying to explain to you what I mean by that. Um, Let us say I was irritated by all the frankly pagan Gaia worship that takes place every April 22nd on Earth Day. It's not so bad in Fayetteville, but you go to a big city and man, it is everywhere. 
And let us say I also felt, and I do think this is true, there is not enough emphasis in the modern church on the transfiguration, on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. You remember when he went up on the mountain with the disciples and he was there with, with Moses and Elijah and for a moment the veil was lifted and they saw his glory and they were overawed by it. So I wanted to kill two birds with one stone. I want to, I want to drive down a pagan day and I want to exalt something true about Christ. So I said every, I, I declared to you guys in the church, every April 22nd, regardless of what day of the week it is, we are going to gather, we're going to worship, we're going to celebrate the transfiguration of Jesus in corporate worship. And what we're going to do is in the middle of the church here, we're going to move out the middle seats and we're going to build a miniature mountain. And then at the top of the miniature mountain, we're going to put a glowy, glowy human figure to represent Jesus. And then I will preach a sermon to you from Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9 and gradually we'll create transfiguration hymns. And people will come to associate April 22nd, not with Gaia and Earth Day, but with Jesus and the transfiguration. And we'll spread the gospel that way. Now, if I told you I was going to do that, I would hope, I would pray that you would say you don't have the authority to do that. Are you crazy? Well, then let me ask you, who does have the authority to do that? Let's go to them. How about the presbytery? The the Grace Presbytery of the ARP, did they have the authority by a vote to create Transfiguration Day and, and force you all to worship on that particular day? The answer is no. No, that's not enough authority. Well then, let's throw the trump card. The entire General Synod of the ARP. If I could convince those guys to vote for my new Transfiguration Day celebration, would that be enough authority? No, the answer is no. The only authority who can ordain worship and tell us how to worship is the Lord God Almighty. He is the only one. And if the ARP Synod cannot create a holy day and compel the church to worship on it, how is it then that ancient presbyters or the self-styled Bishop of Rome had enough authority to create those days out of thin air? The answer is they didn't. And antiquity, that is the gradual passage of years and long observance of tradition, doesn't create authority. It doesn't. If it did, I have to tell you, we'd be right to still be observing the Roman Catholic Mass. But we don't. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Mass is a creation of men. It's not the Lord's Supper as it's found in the Word of God. And it's the word of God that constrains our consciences. As for harm, and many commentators have pointed this out rightly, uh, the observance of tradition have a tendency to supersede the commandments of God. Initially, they're advanced as this will be helpful. Then eventually over time, it becomes you will do this. Absolutely. As a boy, for instance, uh, there were only two days of the year when I knew for certain that I would be in church. They were the most important days in my, my parents' religious calendar. And those days were either Christmas Eve or Christmas itself. And most of the Sundays, the vast majority of them went by the boards. We didn't attend church on those days. So this is not new, though. You remember that the, the Pharisees, they came to, to Jesus and they said to him, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? This is dreadfully important. 
You're, you're, you're sinning by do, not doing this. There, you don't understand. If you don't pour the water on your hands before you eat, you are ceremonially unclean. Jesus answered them this way. He said, he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well, you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Well, okay, come on, that's a little hard. We wouldn't eliminate the commandments of God like the Pharisees did in order to observe our traditions, our man-made traditions. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you how many churches in this town are closed today, the Lord's Day, so they can celebrate Christmas at home the way they traditionally did? Brothers and sisters, this is the wrong, the wrong message that we're sending. And it is the case that these traditions, they gradually eat away at the truth. That's why our forefathers said in the Reformation, we need to go back to it. Well, enough of that. Let's get to the second application. Regarding the Lord's Day, are you robbing yourself of a great blessing? What a delight that the Sabbath really is. Thomas Watson said this. He said, God has appointed the Sabbath for this end. On this day, the thoughts rise to heaven. The tongue speaks of God. And is as the pen of a ready writer, the ears drop tears and the soul burns in love. The heart which all the week was frozen on the Sabbath melts with the word. The Sabbath is a friend to true religion. It files off the rust of our graces. It is a spiritual jubilee wherein the soul is set to converse with its maker. Is that Sunday for you? I hope it is. I'll tell you the truth. This day is my favorite day of the week. It's the day where I have to do something that terrifies me, which is public speaking and talking to people, which is not my natural tendency. I'm, I'm one of the worst introverts that was ever created on God's green earth. But still, it's my favorite day, although everything I do on this day is way outside of my comfort zone, except this, praising and worshiping the Lord together with his people. I love that. It makes my heart sing, and it pushes me in the direction of Christ. If I've had a lousy week, this is the day upon which I receive new assurances. When I receive the grace of God, when I'm strengthened, and when I let, get to look forward to not what is, but what is to come because of what Jesus has done. And so that brings me to my third application. Your attitude towards Sabbath is always a good indicator of your spiritual health. Derek Kidner put it this way. When he said a person or a people's reaction to the gift of a day set apart for God was a fair indicator of their spiritual temperature, and it still is. Whether or not we realize it also, and I hope you do realize it, we teach our children where our treasure really lies by our attitude towards the Lord's day. And in too many cases, we are, as John McKay put it, determining whether... God or their own economic and personal interests were to be the ultimate determinant of their lifestyle. Brothers and sisters, if we work on this day, if we make it a day of leisure, if we make it a day in which, well, we can go to church or we can not go to church, it doesn't really matter. Maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. We're teaching a very important lesson to our children. Remember that that saying from Proverbs cuts both ways. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you train them in worldliness, 
They're not going to depart from it. If you train them in Sabbath keeping, even those kids who apostatize, I tend to find that there's still something that nags at them Sunday by Sunday. The Lord will often bring them back through those little things. And remember, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I will close with this. It's an extended quote by J.C. Ryle. Remember, on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day, we are practicing for heaven. And on this day, you can really tell where your treasure lies. J.C. Ryle said, let us never forget that our feelings about Sundays are sure tests of the state of men's souls. The man who can find no pleasure in giving God one day in the week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. If we cannot enjoy a few hours in God's service once a week in the world, it is plain that we could not enjoy an eternity in his service in the world to come. Happy are those who walk in the steps of her of whom we read today. They shall find Christ and a blessing while they live in Christ and glory when they die. Let's continue, therefore, to seek the Lord and in particular to seek him on his day until our Sabbaths go from being one day per week to the eternal Sabbath that remains from God's people. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we do thank you that you have given us your son. You sent him to earth to be that propitiating sacrifice for our sins. And you gave us one day in seven, the first day of the week, in order to celebrate his resurrection, to declare that grand truth to the world and to remember all that he did. We pray, O Lord, that our preaching would resound with the good news of the gospel, that we would have a renewed emphasis, Lord, in the coming year on his birth, on his crucifixion, on his resurrection, and an emphasis constantly that he is coming again so that men might be ready. Remind us that worship is what we were created for. What we're doing here today is what we were made for. So help us to do it with joy in our hearts. And help us to desire to celebrate this day with others. And we pray.